0: hope that you're okay and and um you feel well enough to do it because I know being a podcaster it's very energetic you you're like you're on the ball the whole time yeah I'm gonna try to be
1: um but yeah (laughs) if I do lose my lose my thread at any point apologies
0: (laughs) just remember I wrote a book and then we never published it there we go
1: that's all I need to know
0: (laughs) that's a big one yeah yeah. And I did chat with my <laughs> publishers, Vertebrate, and they were like, yeah, that's cool. We trust you. Okay. I just think that's... it is quite an important thing because it's so easy just to just to hear all the good stuff, isn't it? You open Twitter or Instagram and it's like, look, yeah, this is great. This is great. This is great. <laughs> and sometimes you need thing. to understand it isn't always so great. So.
1: Hello, Emily here, and you've just been hearing the voice of Jo Mosley, who's my guest in this episode. Jo describes herself as a beach cleaner, joy encourager, and midlife adventurer. She does seem able to do an awful lot of things at the same time, so as well as having a day job, she's also a writer, a speaker, and a fellow podcast host. I heard from Jo on Twitter at the end of last year, when she was telling me about an unfinished book project of hers this was her second book about stand up paddleboarding and she made the difficult decision quite late on in the process to call her publisher and to say that she didn't think they should go ahead with the publication i was really keen to talk to joe because that was such a brave and unusual decision and i think it's a really valuable experience to hear about because it shows that you can Choose not to go along with something when deep down you know it doesn't feel right. Jo is now working on a new book, and I should say that if you're interested in reading some of her work, her first book is called Stand Up Paddleboarding in Great Britain Beautiful Places to Paddleboard in England, Scotland, and Wales. It was published in 2022 by Vertebrate and it's done really well. (laughs) It became a bestseller and it was shortlisted for the Great Outdoors Magazine Book of the Year Award. Before I got talking to Jo about her writing, we spoke about the extraordinary journey she completed in 2019. She became the first woman to stand up paddleboard coast to coast along the Leeds-Liverpool Canal, which is a journey of 162 miles. Along the way, she was picking up litter and fundraising for the Wave Project and for the Two Minute Beach Clean Foundation. While she was doing that journey, Jo was also being filmed for the whole time. She made a film called Brave Enough, A Journey Home to Joy, with the award-winning filmmaker Frit Tam. It came out in 2021, and as with Jo's book, Brave Enough did really well. It had loads of sellout screenings, and it was selected for various film festivals, including Kendall Mountain Festival and Sheffield Adventure Film Festival. There are some links to the film and some other bits of Joe's excellent work in the show notes, so do feel free to explore those. And as ever, if you have an unfinished, abandoned or private project that you'd like to talk about, or if you'd just like to say hello, please do drop me a line via email on unfinishing.pod at gmail.com and I'm also on Instagram at UnfinishingPod and on Twitter at TrueBaggleRag. So, um, can we start off then by talking about your paddleboarding adventure? And could you just maybe talk me through that from the beginning? So, how did it start and what did you do?
0: Yes, yeah, sure. Thank you. So, um, in 2019, I paddleboarded coast to coast or as close to coast to coast as you can get. Mm-hmm. So, that was from Liverpool to Goul, along the Leeds-Liverpool Canal and Air and Colder Navigation. So, 162 miles. I think 101 locks and a couple of hundred swing bridges. And I was raising money for two charities, the Wave Project, which is a surf therapy charity, and the Two Minute Beach Clean Foundation, which encourages us all to take two minutes to pick up litter each day. And I was going to pick up litter along the way. And I had the idea back in 2016, shortly after i take taken my very first paddleboarding lesson, I have a habit of saying, Oh, I'll just try this for the first time. Oh, I think I'll do something really big with it, with absolutely no understanding of what it entails. But I had voiced, you know, shared my idea and a few people, it was sort of Christmas party time. And a few people responded with, well, that sounds logistically quite complex, you know, it's a long way. That sounds um, quite boring. They didn't know the area, but they thought they did and happy to pronounce on it. And also, it sounds too difficult for a woman of your age, which, um, you know, I was only coming up to my 52nd birthday, which at the time felt relatively old, but not that old. And now I realize really isn't old at all. Um, So I put the dream away for about three years because... I didn't have the confidence. I didn't think I could do it. Maybe they were right. Until my youngest son was going off to university, and I thought, I want a big dream to pull me to the future. Being a single mum, I wanted this kind of, I wanted to have something that I could say to the boys, look, mum's fine. And so in July 2019, I set off. I became the first woman to do it. And a few people have done it since, which is lovely. I love meeting people that want to do it or have done it because it's like a very special experience and and everybody, it seems to me is young, but a young woman I met recently and she said, I'm so, you know, she did it really, really quickly compared to me. And she said, yeah, but if, if you hadn't done it, I wouldn't have known about it. And and I think for me, that is just the greatest honor that I've highlighted a joy for somebody and then they can go off and find that themselves. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs>
1: It's interesting what you're saying there about someone doing it much quicker, because I know that you had a bit of time pressure, actually, to get it finished within a certain time, right? Because you you had to fit it around your job. Is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, I decided I would do it after my um, son had done his A-levels, but before his results came out. Yeah, and actually, they were opening this up as a canoe trail, as a coast coast to coast canoe trail, at the end of August that year. And the Canal and River Trust had said, "Look, could you just wait and sort of do it like you know, as an opening thing, or just wait until we've established it?" And I was like, "No, no, I have to get it done by the time <laughs> these results come out." So I really had this very limited sort of period of time, and so I'd given myself, I'd taken five days off work in the first week, and then I think. Three days in the second, and then I was going back to work on the Thursday. And at the time, I also taught Aquafit, so I had to be back in the swimming pool or by the <laughs> swimming pool by the Friday. So we had terrible, terrible weather. And people were messaging me like I was doing some footage for the BBC and they were saying, Oh, are you gonna, you know, postpone or cancel or you know, whatever. And I was like, No, I have to get back to work. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm not a professional adventurer. I had to fit this in in yeah. into my work schedule. So um in the end we did get it done, but uh in in the time frame and made the film and everything. But um yeah, there was a bit of a little bit of time pressure, just simply day to day living really. <laughs>
1: I'm astonished that you could do something so physical and then go immediately and teach aquafit. <laughs> you know, that,
0: was, that was just such a silly idea. Um, <laughs> because what happened was I, we finished it on the Tuesday. We did some filming on the Wednesday. I came home on the Thursday and then was invited to the TV studios to go to BBC Look North and they asked me to take my paddleboard. So I'd carry my paddleboard, inflatable obviously, through the, through the streets and everything, did the TV thing, went back to work on the Friday, went to teach Aquafit on the Friday night and woke up on the Saturday morning and was like, I can't move. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just literally, what has happened? I think I was just living on adrenaline and peanut yeah. butter sandwiches, and you know <laughs> the TV were interested, and I knew that you know I couldn't say, oh, well, you know, I'll come in next week because anything could have happened. So, I just was living on adrenaline, and um, quite a well a very well known adventurer, Alistair Humphreys, was coming to interview me. Mm -hmm. And I rang him and I said, I'm so sorry, Alistair, but I can't move. (laughs) And I just think, you know, could you come tomorrow? And he just very generously said yes. So... I think I can't remember either late Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning. I just went went to Morrison's and so I like picked up some toast and jam and, you know, refilled the fridge and welcomed him into my home on the Sunday and put some proper clothes on. And then as soon as he left after interviewing, I put my gym jams back on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a little bit, I, I have that habit of thinking I can do too much.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you said that when you initially came up with the idea, people kind of pushed back and said, oh, it's not a very interesting area Mm. to do it in. And one of the things that I was interested in that you said in your film, which we'll talk about in a second, was that you wanted to encourage people to explore what's on their doorstep. Mm. And why is that important to you? Is that about challenging people's perceptions of that area?
0: I mean, it was pre-COVID. And obviously, I think doorstep adventures have become much more the norm now but, you know, people realize what is on their doorstep and that they can find real joy. But there was was that element and also keeping costs low that, you know, I had sort of seen all these people going off and doing really amazing things, but they were quite expensive or they had to take a plane. And so I wanted just to show the joy on your doorstep. I hadn't, I don't think I realized how amazing it was going to be either. I, I had this idea that there would be fun and and beauty, but I hadn't appreciated it until I, until I went and did it, to be honest. And at one point we were going to call the film Adventure on Your Doorstep, and, and then it just sounded like it was too much of a mouthful. And it didn't, you know, it didn't really say what the film was about as, as clearly as we wanted. But I did want to show that. And I think obviously COVID and lockdown, everybody's realized just, you know what is available and how you can have all these amazing adventures very close to home but yeah we i also wanted the whole environmental point just to say mm. you know everybody has to make their own choices but you can have incredible experiences quite close to home and also in the in the oddest of places because the start of the canoe trail the coast to coast canoe trail is in is in a housing estate there's there's a pavement and then it becomes a canal it, and it doesn't feel adventurous. We have this yeah. image that adventures need to feel and look adventury and it looked so unadventury on a very gray end of July day. And yet it was the start of something that really changed my life. So yeah, it doesn't always have to even look adventury to be an adventure.
1: <laughs> and you talked about, how you had terrible weather and people saying should you postpone? Were there moments perhaps when you were being constantly rained on when you did feel like stopping?
0: yeah definitely I mean not whilst I was actually doing it because I think I felt like I'm just battling on you know and and I'd chosen to put myself in this position (laughs) and it was a real privilege you know that I could do it and that and one of the reasons that I did it was because as I say in the film a, a number of my girlfriends had died and only one of them had reached 50 so I knew that at 50 oh, by this time I was 54. So I knew that at 54 to be well and healthy enough to to take it on was a real privilege. And I was lucky that, you know, I could take time off work and do this and that I had a board and and all that stuff. So I knew all along it was a real privilege to do it and that I'd chosen to put myself in this position. I think the doubts mainly came at night, which is when my doubts really creep in Mm -hmm. and the sense of I'm so far behind my plan, I don't know if I can do this, you know, that three o'clock in the morning stuff. When you're on the water, you just keep battling through. But when you're lying in a bed and thinking, I don't want to get up because I haven't had any sleep and I don't know if I can do this and I'm making a fool of myself, that's when the doubts came in and I had to sort of talk myself down and say, no, just, you'll just have to take more time off work um, if you can't get across in the time allotted, but
1: just keep just keep going, really. When you said there about the concern about being worrying about making a fool of yourself. Mm. Is that a concern, do you think, that, that came from the fact that so many people said you couldn't do it in the first place?
0: Yes, I think so. And my natural inclination is to believe I'm not good enough. Um, it's taken me a long time to believe that I am good enough at things. So it really is quite a rare phenomenon that I actually believe in myself. So yes, I think, and as I say in the film, I've had bravery forced upon me like like so many of us have when something goes wrong in life and you have to rise to the challenge so being a single mum or you know when my mum died you know you you have these situations where life forces you to become brave unexpectedly or you know reluctantly but I hadn't really done anything where I'd said I'm going to do this thing voluntarily and I don't know if I can do it, I don't know if I have the strength to do it or the fortitude or if it's possible and I'm setting myself up for people to watch and say haha you're right you couldn't do it so yeah there was always that thing in the back of my mind of people saying it's too much for you or it's a bit you know it's too logistically complex or it's boring and nobody will be interested there was that element of it too so yeah that was always playing on my mind <laughs> Sometimes I look back and think, "How did I even think I could do it?" But sometimes being naive, a little bit naive helps as well.
1: <laughs> and having achieved that amazing achievement, mm-hmm. do you now do you have more self confidence in your own ability post adventure?
0: Yes, I do. I do. I think there also comes something with age where you start just to feel a little bit more confident in yourself. But yes, I do feel. I can always draw upon that even when things aren't going right there are little things within me that say you did that and you know you created the film and and it has encouraged other people to believe in particularly sort of women that come up to me and say oh watching the film or hearing what you did it's encouraged me to take a paddle boarding lesson or to go for a walk or whatever it is so yeah I do feel like It has given me something that I can draw upon when the doubts set in and say, there's something very, very tangible, Joe." So next time all the doubts come hurtling in at three in the morning, just remember that one thing.
1: (laughs) So then talking about your film Brave Enough specifically Mm -hmm. then, what was it like being filmed while you were doing something that was such a challenge? It was
0: really weird. You know, when people say you're in the Big Brother house and you forget the cameras are there. Yeah. After a while, it, it just felt quite normal. And and Fritz and I have, you know, we hadn't known each other that much beforehand, mm-hmm. and we've become such good friends that we can have conversations on WhatsApp in emojis and we know what the other person's feeling, you know. And so it did become quite normal, really. And I think it's helped because I have done TV interviews and things um, since, and they say, you're very good. And I'm like, I was taught by the best, you know, I sort of know – you know, I know how to do it because of, yeah. of that training, so to speak. There were a few funny times. So for example, if you recall in the film where I went wrong, one of one of the things that people would say to me beforehand was at least on a canal, you can't go wrong. You just <laughs> point in the direction of leads and move on. And I'm like, yeah, 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 no, funny, funny, haha. I'll not go wrong. And then I did go wrong. Yeah. And it was at that time where I wasn't quite in the, you know, a long way behind and wasn't yeah. sure that I could do it. And I, picked you know there's footage of me picking up litter and and saying i'm going to pick up this sorry that's the dog pick up okay. this you know big bag of sort of like an industrial waste bag i'm going to fill it with litter and i'm going to move on and I filled it with litter and moved on, but I didn't check that I was going in the right yeah. direction. And the wind had sort of spun me round. And and sort of two to three bridges later, I realised I was on my way back to Liverpool. Hell and no. I burst into tears. It was just that feeling of stupidity. Yeah. And I rang Frit and said, you know, we're gonna, I'm gonna be late because. And, and Frit was, well, how do you feel? I said, well, can you not hear I'm crying? Yeah. You know, I'm I'm literally crying. I feel so stupid, and I keep saying to myself you're not a mistake. You've made a mistake. It's so easy to think, oh, I've made one mistake and everything's gone wrong. And I kept saying, no, I'm not a mistake. I've just made a mistake. It's okay. It's okay. And Fritz said, so you're crying. I'm like, yeah. And Fritz said, do you think you could get that on camera? (laughs) And I was like, you're just so mean. What a horrible (laughs) thing to say. But Fritz was right because actually it showed – just this very simple, honest response. I'm sure I'm not the only person that it, something's gone wrong on, a, on an adventure. And, you know, you have to just sort of be graceful and gracious with yourself and say, and compassionate and say, okay, you made a mistake. It is a bit of a boo-boo, but it's not the end of the world. Just keep on paddling and, you know, you've got a bit of a long way to go. And a lot of people say to me that at that point that they really feel that and they really kind of resonated with them and it and they sort of really related to it when you know you make a mistake in life and you think oh god you know what a fool I am but you pick yourself up and and you carry on so yeah but that little voice somebody saying I can't do this was ringing in my
1: head at that time
0: yeah
1: and something else that I wanted to ask you about which you mentioned in the film was that you said it was a friend who first recommended to you that exercise could help with mental health Mm. and I think it can be really difficult to to feel like doing any sort of physical activity when you aren't in a good place. Mm. And I wondered if you were at all resistant to that suggestion when it was first made to you.
0: No, I was so desperate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wasn't sleeping. I was just overwhelmed. And I think when you're crying in, in supermarkets with your sons, um, yeah. and it wasn't the first supermarket, you know, I have cried in others. Um <laughs> I think it's an um, equal I, really hate right. I, I think I was just so desperate. I just wanted to sleep. I just wanted to feel better. I just wanted to not feel so overwhelmed. So, literally, when she said, you know, borrow this indoor rowing machine, yeah. and it wasn't that she just gave me an idea, she gave me a physical solution. You yes. know, she didn't sort of say, "Oh, well, why don't you go for it? You know, I was still already w- walking and things, but. Yeah. I think I just needed something a little bit more vigorous, really. And you know, she gave me this machine, and it was like, "We'll have a go." So, and I'd heard it before. You know, I had heard it before, but at this point, it was I just wanted to sleep. And I think, I think I thought, well, if if it makes me sleep, then we'll re- we'll address all the other things later. Yeah. But right now, I can't sleep, and I just feel like I can't function. Yeah. Um, I obviously still was the, the, you know the boys were still going to school and I was going to my job it just felt like I was really hanging on by a thread
1: yeah I mean I guess that's speaks volumes in itself doesn't it if you were if you were going to work and your children were going to school but that was you weren't able to do anything else I suppose
0: yeah I always you know sort of joke with my friends about how you'd come in from work and you, you know feed the boys help with homework I mean they were teenagers but there's still a little bit of you know encouragement going on and and then about eight o'clock I'd realized that I hadn't taken my coat off because there's that sort of after school after work everything needs to get done and then about eight o'clock you think oh crumbs I'm still wearing my coat and yeah so it just felt like there was nothing there was nothing of me. I was just running on empty the whole time and yeah. um, and obviously trying to look after my dad and
1: I'm not his carer or anything like that, but just, mm-hmm. you know, being there for him really. And so far we've been talking about some extremely impressive projects that you have completed. <laughs> um, but luckily for me, you also have things that are incomplete. So, so I'm very grateful for that. And one of those is a book. Uh, which was a follow-up to your extremely successful first book, which was called yeah. Stand Up Paddleboarding in Great Britain. So what's the story behind that second unfinished book? What was it about? So it was a tips book.
0: So I'd, I'd written the first book for Vertebrate. I'd pitched that in lockdown. I'd written it just after sort of May 2021. So travelled the country with my paddleboard, wrote the book, held my breath and hoped that it would be a success. And, uh, you know, very gratefully, very thankfully, it has been. And Vertebrate had a series on 1001 Tips. The series of these books was lighthearted and serious. So there was elements of really good practical advice and then some fun stuff too. Mm-hmm. And I was feeling like, great, I think this will be a great, I, and you know, I think it is a great book and a great book idea. And so I set about writing it at the same time as I was also this book was launching, and my anxiety did go off the scale. And I got to like I can't remember how many, it's something like thirteen hundred, so I was way over. Mm -hmm. But something just within me felt like a it wasn't the right book for the paddleboarding community at that time. That's not what paddleboarders wanted they really love travel guides they want to know places rather than tips and also paddleboarding itself was had gone through a huge a huge growth because of lockdown and and so also it felt like the community was growing and and I it didn't feel like the book I was writing was matching that I, I couldn't keep up with the growth really and different tips but also it didn't feel like my my writing it didn't feel like me I was trying to write in a way that didn't feel natural, and the places in the book where it felt natural, where it felt like the other book, they were they were there, but they weren't the bulk of the book. And and so I finished the book. So actually, the book's finished. There is okay. a book there. <laughs> and then I had a conversation and, and spoke to my editor, who's amazing, Kirsty. And and she and I remember because I think she thought, oh, we'll take the book and we'll turn it into something else, don't worry. Mm. I remember sitting there in, in the car looking out over this expanse of uh, the Wolf Valley over Ilkley and the greenery and 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 just saying, No, no, I really don't think we should publish it. And she was like, Yeah, no, we can do this. And I was like, No, no, I really don't think you know, and I was fighting for not producing something yeah. I just spent months and months on. And she was great. She was like, well, we've never, you know, people have handed manuscripts in before and we've decided they weren't quite right. But we've never, I'm sure she said this, you know, we've never had an author, um, particularly one who'd already written a book, say, I've written a book and I don't think we should publish it. So it was quite a surprise. but, But also, they're such great publishers that they also know that, particularly in this market the author has to be behind the book. You can't just publish a book nowadays and hope for the best. Or or maybe you can if you're an amazing author. But as a first-time author and a very – or second-time author, but you know, a relatively new author in a niche market in a very competitive world, I couldn't just write it and hope for the best and and not be behind it. And I just – it just didn't feel right. I know that sounds really – Silly, but it just didn't feel like it was the right book for the right market and I was the right person doing it. And so we didn't.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and I got myself, you know, I got behind the first book and it's done incredibly well and it's yeah. gone to reprint. And I'm right now writing another book, like the proper second book. And it feels like it's my words, my words, my voice. What's special about the first book is that it's not just like a travel guide of, you know, you put in here and then you turn left and these are the tides and this is where you have cake. It's stories. And I think that's where my strength lies in stories. And so this second book will be stories again. I mean, I still have my doubts and anxieties, but this time I think I'm back on track. I just made a bit of a detour. (laughs)
1: I mean, that doesn't sound to me like a silly decision to make at all, but it does sound like it was probably quite a brave and a hard decision to make. Were you thinking about it a lot in advance before you did have that? Yeah,
0: again, three o'clock in the morning. I think it was the heart palpitations, you know, it was the anxiety and the, I think, you know, when your your body almost tells you this isn't a good thing, you know, my body and my mind were telling me that this wasn't going to be the right thing for me or the market or for Vertebrate. You know, I had a, res- I felt I had a responsibility to them. You know, we, as an author and a publisher, you are in a joint, on a joint project. And so I felt like I would be doing the wrong thing, asking them to invest in it with me. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was a really good book and I had. <laughs> really good tips and I've learned so much I mean I have read more about tides than I ever thought I ever wanted to know (laughs) and I had some really the the other thing is I had some people give me some great tips too in areas that were specific to them so I felt in a way there was also an element of I was letting them down so even though I knew deep down it was the right decision there was also those elements of I've let people down I've wasted people's time I've wasted my own time you know, I was sitting there at the laptop and it was really summery weather, and I could have been out on my paddleboard, but instead I was writing about paddleboarding. You know, there was a lot that I was learning from this experience about life. So, even though I knew it was the right thing to do, I also need, felt like I needed to go around and explain to people once the decision had been made that it, I just couldn't see it becoming a success and the right thing. And I didn't want them to be part of something that I didn't feel 100% behind. And so I had to go around, or not had to, but wanted to go around and thank everybody individually and say, it's a commercial and a personal decision, because it was a mixture of everything. It was, you know, so many elements into the decision. It wasn't, I didn't take it lightly and Thurtebrick took it very seriously and didn't just go, oh, okay, Joe. you know, we had a big discussion about it. And I wanted to make amends, you know, I wanted not to leave people hanging and saying, "Oh, didn't I help somebody write a book once? And she never got back to me, you know, with my tip about, you know, adaptive paddleboarding or something. So I went around and sort of repaired things and made amends and apologized and thanked. And the response was lovely. I have to yeah. say the response was just so kind. And, and maybe I'd like to think that maybe one day somebody makes a decision and thinks, that what Joe did helped them. I'd like to hopefully think that maybe I encourage them to believe that sometimes you have to make hard decisions yeah. that don't seem sensible on the face of it, but deep down you
1: know that is the right thing. hope so. Yeah, and I was going to say, I bet people really appreciated you going to all the effort to go around them individually and explaining the decisions.
0: It was a lot. Yeah. Cause there were a lot of people I hadn't realized, you know, and actually I thought of one last night. I thought, oh my gosh, she gave me this one tiny tip. I tried, you know, I had a list and it was just like a lit, you know, you're just ticking them off and each one was an individual email. I didn't just do like, right, you know, a blanket one. Yeah. It was an individual one. And I hope so. I, I just felt like I had to not clear up my mess, so to speak, but I, I had made a decision and I needed to take responsibility for that decision. It wasn't just The consequences for me, there were consequences for other people too, Mm -hmm. even though they might not have thought that their contribution was very big at the time. But for me, it was. And so anything anybody had told me was important enough for me to go back and say, look, I'm really sorry, but this is what the decision is and, and this is what we've gone for. So it was really quite scary Because I'm not a very forceful person. I'm very enthusiastic when it's all going well, but I'm not very forceful when it's sort of a bit harder. And I surprised myself by the level of confidence with which Mm -hmm. I was able to make that decision and convey it to Kirsty, who was amazing and just brilliant. And that's why she's such a great editor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And you said to me in an email as well that making that decision taught you quite a lot. Could you tell me what it was that that it taught you?
0: Yeah, it did teach me. It taught me to listen to my intuition and to my gut. You know, my gut was rumbling and just saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is... Yeah, it, did t- it taught me to listen to myself. It taught me to, again, to back myself and to be brave enough. It, it's all the same themes as the film, really, in terms of backing an idea and backing your vision for something and backing when it doesn't go quite as you'd hoped and saying, no, I trust that this is the right decision here. And I do think it's the right decision. Again, it's those times where you think against all, you know, it doesn't seem rational to write a book, to spend months writing a book and then saying we shouldn't publish it. But it was also, it was the right decision. And again, it's listening to that little voice that says, just trust your judgment, trust that you have understood the community, the market, your writing, your skill, the, what's right for you, what's right for the publisher, just trust yourself. So, yeah, and I hope that it, I can use it as other examples where I have to say, trust myself, you know, yeah. trust myself and, and trust myself to put some boundaries in place that I could so easily have just gone along with it because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to let people, you know, I hate letting people down, yeah. I hate yeah. letting people down. I, you know, I, I felt like I was a failure but also not a failure at the same time. And I could easily have just not sort of stood my ground. But, yeah, lots of lessons, lots of lessons. And I hope that my sons, you know, they're 26, 22 now, that they might look back and say, well, you know, mum was going down one course of action. In fact, they're very good at this. My sons, I follow them sometimes. You know, mum was going down one course of action and and then she decided that wasn't the right way, so she backed up a bit and went down another one. And, and hopefully we can all do that. Because I do have a habit of just sticking with things long after I should have left them. So this, I guess, was a good example of actually moving on sooner. So that was unusual for me.
1: And is it also about having confidence in your own strengths? Because you said a moment ago that your strength lies in stories. So was it to do with, as well, being able to say, actually, what I'm best at is elsewhere?
0: Yeah, which when you're a a writer, you know, I still... I have a best-selling book, but I still kind of think, oh, I'm not really a proper writer. (laughs) Yeah, there is a strength in sort of being able to know your own, what makes your book special. And and the great thing is, I mean, we don't have many paddleboarding books. There's two coming out literally next month, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. If you compare the body of literature for climbing or yeah. running or cycling or even wild swimming, we are still we are at the really at the foothills of our literature. Mm-hmm. We have so few, and so it, it's great. I have one style, and they'll have other styles, and and I think there's room for all of us. Mm-hmm. But I know that when I sort of hear what people say, I had one amazing review. A woman said, "Look, I will never paddleboard." but I felt like I was on the board with Joe traveling the country. Mm -hmm. And I've had that a lot from people where they say it felt like I was with you in those moments where you slept on the beach or where you saw a dolphin and burst into tears or you saw a jellyfish. And there's obviously photography to go with it, which is lovely photography, but the words are what resonate and people say they they feel like A, they were with us and B, that it's something that they could try as well. And I know that's my strength and I have weaknesses, which I need to improve upon. But I do know that my strength is saying to people, come with us, come on the paddleboard with us. Let me tell you about what I saw. Let me tell you about... The seahorses that were in Studland Bay, or let me tell you about this type of jellyfish or this type of little blue flower that's found here, or the Kashmiri goats or whatever. Let me take you with us on a beach as sunsets and you can see Aaron in the distance. And that I know is what my strength is. And it's not to everybody's taste, but it's been enough to enough people's taste for the book to sell out. So, <laughs> um, so yeah it's about knowing your strength and then also just kind of working on your weaknesses, which I'm trying to do in the second book.
1: I mean, going with you to look at jellyfish and seahorses sounds fantastic. (laughs) That sounds lovely.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. And I talk about the people as well. You know, I talk about who I met and what paddleboarding means to them and how it's contributed to their lives and what they do. And, And to me, these are all, wonderful people that have become incredible friends and now when I see their successes as they've gone on to do other things it feels like we were just part of a very special time and Mm -hmm. and I hope that I've introduced new paddlers to these paddleboarders from the sort of 2021 community and that we'll all grow together yeah so it's, it's introducing people to friends and people who maybe they don't necessarily see in the image of social media and magazines or on Instagram and say, oh, she's like me, she's my age, or she's encouraging plus size paddlers, or, you know, she's very much an environmentalist, or he is a, you know, a friend of mine, Craig, who's a firefighter, you know, high up in the fire and rescue service, and and yet goes paddleboarding for the way it de-stresses him. Yeah, I hope that I've introduced people to other people and they'll go, oh, they're like me. Maybe I could start paddleboarding too.
1: And what does paddleboarding mean to you? Ooh, what does it mean to me?
0: It means um, it's just an opportunity. I always say that I feel like a warrior, not a worrier. And as you can probably tell listening to this process, worry is my default mode. You know, it, you know, my mum used to say, you'll worry about something, even if there's nothing to worry about. And I, you know, I am very good at worrying. It is one okay. of my key strengths, but it makes me feel like a warrior. It makes me feel confident. It calms me. It energizes me and it gives me those moments where I'll just feel I'm 50 meters from the shore. And yet I feel like I'm in a little world of my own. I mean, I am often accused of living in a little world of my own anyway, <laughs> um, but this is a literally a physical little world of my own, just bobbing around on the sea. It's brought great friendships. It's brought great creativity. I've learned so much. Yeah, it just makes me feel a little bit braver. Mm. And I think we all need that in life. <laughs>
1: If it's okay with you, I'd like to move on now to talking about a few of the other things that you mentioned to me as unfinished experiences. Yeah. And the first of those is the impact of miscarriage. Um, just to check, are you still okay to Yeah, of that course, today or, yeah, yeah, I am, okay. definitely, definitely, yeah. Thank you. So I don't have children and mm-hmm. I've never tried to have children, so I, I can't really imagine, I don't think, what that experience must be like. But mm-hmm. could you tell me what the impact of it has been for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I talk about it because people still say it's a taboo. But mm-hmm. my miscarriages were sort of twenty-five plus years ago when it really wasn't, you know, spoken about. And I had not had no clue that so many women have miscarriages or the impact it can have on them and and their relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had I had two miscarriages, and what happened to me, and and we share this in the film, is that I just. I just bottled it up and I let, I didn't really explore that grief. And the grief then sunk into, it sounds a bit woo woo, but it sunk into my bones. And then when my mum died, just, it was like this, it just tipped over. And I think miscarriages, it's like you, you, you have some friends and you're all getting on the train and then you're asked to leave the train and they're off on their journey. and. You're just standing on on the side on the train station, and they're going off on this adventure, and you're not. And it's and it's a very like somebody once sort of said it's like being sort of ejected from your own life, and it is because you, you you can't help. Well, I couldn't help, mm. but start planning and start thinking. And you know, um, with my first miscarriage, I'd already had one. My eldest son Henry and and and. And so I sort of knew the process, I knew what was the expectation at the end and and then you're just ejected from this journey, and, and other people you know and absolutely you're happy for other people, your friends to to carry on on that journey, but you're just left with this sense of nothingness and And so for me, it was like it took me a long time to give myself permission to grieve yeah really um because to a certain degree so many and i don't know what the statistics are now but so many women do experience thing, them and yeah. so many couples are in that same position but you know we didn't have social media we, we didn't have support groups you know it was like you just sort of buckled up and got on with it so you kind of found out other women did and you found out other couples were grieving and yeah. you found out but you then didn't I didn't really have any sort of support network, mm-hmm. so I just got on with it. And then I was lucky enough to have my second son, and then I had another miscarriage. Um, and so for me, I think it was just there was never really any opportunity for resolution. Yeah. And then when Mum died, um, I was just so incredibly fortunate. I was offered bereavement counselling, mm-hmm. and I think I was meant to have like six sessions. And I think on session five, I said to the gentleman who was just so lovely, mm. I said to him, We haven't talked about my mum. You know, I feel really bad. We haven't talked about my mum. We spent five sessions and we still haven't got to mum. Mm. And he was so good. He said, We're just excavating the grief that is within you. Um, and that was the miscarriages, that was divorce, um, all sorts of different things. And my mum was just like the the final bit that tipped over. And so um, I think it was at that point that I started to really give, my, give myself permission to grieve and give myself permission to know that it will never, I'll never resolve it. I'll never, there'll always be a loss. There'll always be a sense of unfinished. You know, there'll always be that sort of, what would he or she be like? You know, what would it have been like to, if I'd had a daughter, what would it have been like, you know, if I'd had three or four, well, I probably wouldn't have gone to four children, but, um, you know, what would it have been like? There is a sense of, but you make peace with it. It's like, you know, you, you carry it within you and there will always be a grief. Um, and whenever I hear of another, somebody else having a miscarriage, there's always a sense of, I don't know, a real empathy and a real sense of I I understand a little bit of what you're going through and and you just want to send them all the love that you can because you know it's a really hard experience even though it's common it's still really hard yeah. um, and so it's it's always unfinished and yet there's so much I have so much more compassion for myself and mm-hmm. And um, just huge gratitude for the bereavement counselling. Yeah. And then, as I say in the film, you know, the rowing helped me. So uh, for those that don't know, I rowed a million metres in a marathon um, and a couple of half marathons in memory of my mum yeah. for Macmillan Cancer. But it was the, gr- the the rowing really helped the grief come out and all that grief that had soaked into my bones and I was somehow able to exhale it. So yes it's an unfinished thing which I just have a lot more compassion for and for myself and for the experience that we as a family went through
1: yeah you've said a few times you've described it a few times the grief almost in in physical terms mm. is that how you experienced it did it was did it feel like a physical thing as much as
0: yeah it did yeah, yeah it really did I know this sounds silly, but I truly believe there are times in my life where I physically felt my heart break. Um, and that does sound like complete woo woo, but it, I just do feel like that I can physically feel something shatter within me. Um, and so the rowing was, it was just like it was bringing that grief out of felt like it was in the real marrow of my bone. Mm-hmm. In, you call it bone marrow. Yeah, like right in the middle of the bones, and and the rowing, and they're going backwards and forwards, and and you know trying to get to a million meters for mum. Just sort of brought it out, and I I've read other uh, reports where where Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat Pray Love, um, she talked about when her partner, uh when her I think they were married, when her wife died, her partner died, that they. That she danced at the funeral, and it was like a way of moving that grief um so yeah, it, it did feel like a it was like absolutely soaked in my bones, everything just felt, yeah, just tainted with it, really, yeah,
1: yeah a real physical feeling, and you mentioning your mum just now reminded me mm-hmm. that in the film, there were a couple of significant moments with your mum almost kind of keeping you company um on your journey when you when you saw certain things and and, and smelt um, certain things could you could you tell me about that
0: yeah when um, when mum was dying in hospital like my mum was a sort of larger than life kind of character if if Instagram had really been around she would have been a a 70 year old influencer, (laughs) she would would have been a sort of Iris Apfel kind of, you know, she was so beautifully made up. She loved jewelry. She loved giving. She, I mean, in the 70s, you know, long before social media or Google or anything, she would sit by the telephone, and she would have an encyclopedia and people would ring up with their ailments. And (laughs) she was not a doctor, um, but she would, you know, she would determine and diagnose exactly what was wrong with them. And you know she's just such a giver of life, and just a force of life, and just a beautiful, beautiful woman, and always made up, and just amazing. And I remember in the sixties, you know, sixties and seventies, I'd go to school and wonder what colour my mum's hair would be when I'd get back that night. So she was amazing. And so when she was dying in hospital, so she had lymphoma. Um, when she was dying in hospital, she said to us, "If you, if you ever smell lavender." see a white feather or see a rainbow, then, you know, know that I'm close by and she so, you know, like to cover all the vases. Um, and so obviously on the canal, you see white feathers, there's swans. And there is lavender growing along. There's certain, there's certain parts near in Wigan, particularly there's a beautiful along the, the locks, there's loads of lavender there. But as I came into Leeds, which is like the first part of the Leeds-Liverpool Canal uh, before changing to the colder, air and colder navigation, it was a stormy night. It was like a windy storminess. And we passed the Canal and River Trust building, and there was a lot of lavender. And and so I smelt the lavender. And that really moved me. And I was sort of crying as we arrived in Leeds. And, you know, Frit had the camera on just to make sure all the tears were there. Um, (laughs) And and, and my eldest son has a lavender tattoo. And, you know, so I was just thinking about my boys and and thinking about my mum and and then as we arrived in Ghoul, um, it had been a really beautiful sunny day. The wind had been behind us. I had washed my hair. I would put a little bit of makeup on. And I was like, you know, I'm going to arrive in Ghoul and just have some lovely photos taken. And, you know, I'm going to have finished this. I'm going to have got the 162 miles. And just before we arrived in Ghoul, the heavens just opened. And it just poured down like Poured like a bucket. And then five, six, seven minutes later, so a friend of mine, Emma, came out in her little kayak and we just battled through. It was just amazing through this rain. And there were some people on the side and they gave me some roses that were completely bedraggled. (laughs) Just honestly, I look like one of those Olympic champions, but just somebody pouring a bucket of water over her. And And then this rainbow came out Um, and it was a very faint double rainbow, but this one bit of it was just extraordinarily strong and bright and vibrant. And I just couldn't believe it. I, I could not believe that, you know, the weather forecast hadn't said that this was not expected and it had been so sudden and and it was a rainbow and there's sort of pictures of me just trying to hold back the tears. And and my dad was there and he sort of said, did you see the rainbow? And I was like, yeah. And he said, I think it's your mother. And I was like, I think so. Um, it was extraordinary. Uh, you know, just, it was like she was there. But, um, I mean, she was not really into sporty things either. So she'd have been a bit like, well, get yourself home, have a nice cup of tea. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was extraordinary. It was, you know, it was serendipity. None of us could have expected that and, and Frit captured it all on film. <laughs> I mean, hopefully
1: you did also go home and get a nice cup of tea afterwards. <laughs> but...
0: Yeah, so Frit, my dad and I went to the pub that night and I just remembered, you know, Frit and my dad were talking about TV programmes yeah. and we had, they all had pie and, and we just, we just had a lovely, lovely evening and it was a very special, special day, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and your paddleboarding adventure i think mm. is is part of another unfinished experience that you told me about which was giving up on your dreams in your 30s and 40s and then rediscovering them in your 50s mm. and also discovering that there were dreams you haven't yet finished so could i ask what happened to make you take a pause on your ambitions and and was that conscious or was it did it was it just one of life's things that happened
0: it was just life you know it it was just life I happened and I just kind of got on this sort of (laughs) train of life and and just, and I still, I guess, was part of that generation where you sort of felt like your needs became secondary and then children come along and and there's just no time to sort of, you're just too exhausted to think otherwise. I mean, obviously I have two sons who I adore and I'm incredibly proud of. So if all I look back on for those 30s and 40s and say I have two sons that I love I'm incredibly grateful and a very very fortunate person but a lot of my dreams you know I had ideas and I would just sort of put them to the side and yeah it's just you know my generation was not encouraged to put our dreams first by any means um, and I think that's why so many women in their 50s and 60s suddenly go, wow, it's time, you know, yeah. the children are a little bit older, they still need us, but not on a sort of daily basis uh, or in a different, certainly in a different way we can go out. And that's why there's so many women in their fifties and sixties, sort of in their prime, just doing stuff because yeah. we just want to make the most of it. And we've got a lot of experience to draw upon, but yeah, it wasn't a conscious decision. It's just life battered away at me, and you know, chipped away at my confidence really. As I said, a number of my girlfriends died and you, I just realized that life is just very short and very precious. And if you have the spark of a dream, then you should, you know, owe it to yourself just at least to get yourself to the start line. I think sometimes just getting yourself to the start line of anything is half the battle. And then once you're there, it's like, right, let's just crack on now. And it's look lovely. And I'm very fortunate that I have the chance to, you know, fulfill some of those dreams now. And there's so many things that I'd like to do in the future. And did you have,
1: was it a quick sort of revelation about getting back to fulfilling your, your own ambitions or was it a, a gradual building in confidence a slow burn as you decided to oh go slow
0: burn yeah. Yeah. yeah slow burn I'm you know when people say they have these aha moments I'm like oh gosh how do you have them I think for me it's more like the author Brenny Brown talks about like it's like a string of she calls them twinkle lights but like fairy lights mm-hmm. and for me it's like these tiny little lights that happen and then you go oh maybe I could do that oh I get that or and then they just sort of build up and then you suddenly look around and you have this garland of light that's again this sounds really woo woo but it's (laughs) like you have lots of little lights and they're leading the pathway to your future but for me it's not one big aha moment I never have like one I just have these little ones that go oh okay so it's okay to put myself first oh it's okay (laughs) to spend time on myself I'm heartbroken that my friend has died what can I you know, I can never bring them back, but can I honor their memory? Can I honor the vitality in life and creativity they had? What can I do that in some way honors them? And then you have these little lights and then suddenly you look up and there's a lot of lights and they're leading you to a, a pathway that you had not experienced or expected. So there are lots of little moments that you just sort of build upon and then you look back and go, ah, okay, that makes sense
1: now. That's a very lovely image. (laughs) (laughs) And what is the next light on the string? What are your future plans?
0: Um, So this new book about the Lake District, which I'm really enjoying, and just getting the chance to read a lot about and then paddleboard in the Lake District. I'd like to do some more walking and hiking and camping and sleeping under the stars and and I also decided last night I'd like to go inter-railing again um yeah. I went interrailing when I was 18 with a girlfriend and uh, after we did our A levels and I just I can not remember something flashed up on my Instagram about traveling on a train and I thought that would be so good just to go a month interrailing as a you know I'll be 60 at the end of next year so, um, at the beginning of the year, I want to go with a, an organization called Gutsy Girls who are lovely and they do, um, cross country skiing and snowshoeing and mm-hmm. dipping in icy, icy water. So I'd like to do that at the beginning of next year. And then at some point I'd like to go in the next couple of years, I'd like to do a lot more sleeping under the stars and a lot more hiking and some interrailing. I just think it'd be just really fun to go back as an older woman and just sort of, yeah, just experience it. I'm sure it'll be very, very different. Yeah. Then as an eighteen year old. But yeah, so there's lots of things like that. I think just doing a lot of things close to nature, definitely. I just love that sort of feeling of going off somewhere really <laughs> and seeing what where it takes me.
1: Well, there you go. That was my interview with Jo, who was very lovely and very easy to talk to. A big thank you to her for joining me, especially because when we spoke, Jo was still recovering from a nasty bout of the lurgy, and especially because she was willing to talk about some difficult topics that I do think other people will benefit from hearing about. I wanted to mention as well, because we forgot to talk about it in the interview, that one of the ways Jo is saying thank you to the people who shared ideas with her for her book is to write a column in Stand Up Paddleboarding magazine. The first column came out last week and there's a link in the show notes for you to have a look at. As you'll have picked up from the interview, Jo is very modest and very self-effacing, but I think the very many different aspects of her work and how she conducts her life are inspiring in lots of different ways. I think in particular it is wonderful to have someone like her being so visible in the world of the outdoors. There are so many barriers to young girls taking up sport and exercise, and there are so many barriers to women in general being active at various different points in their lives. And having people like Jo around I think just makes it so much easier to go bollocks to that. I'm going to go outside and do something fun.